the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents No Neutrality, where we have a roundtable of contributors pushing the antithesis in every area of life. From family to government, apologetics to homeschooling, being a wife and a mother, a husband, a father, single, widow, business owner or employee, you will hear commentary, essays, lectures, blogs and battle plans on how to bring forth the Christian worldview to all of life. Lectures on the Politics of God and the Politics of Man Lecture 3 The Politics of God and the Politics of Man Part 1 The word politics comes from the Greek word polis, meaning city. The term polis originally referred to a fortified place of refuge, but came to mean, and I quote, the ruling political centre of a given district, or the territory ruled therefrom, unquote. The Greek states were small city-states originally founded on a religious worship. According to Fustel de Coulanges, and I quote, With the ancients, a city was never formed by degrees, by the slow increase of the number of men and houses. They founded a city at once, all entire in a day. But the elements of the city needed to be first ready, and this was the most difficult, and ordinarily the largest work. As soon as the families, the fratries, and the tribes had agreed to unite, and to have the same worship, they immediately founded the city as a sanctuary for this common worship, and thus the foundation of a city was always a religious act. Unquote. Furthermore, and again I quote, we must not picture to ourselves the city of these ancient ages as an agglomeration of men living mingled together within the enclosure of the same walls. In the earliest times the city was hardly the place of habitation, it was the sanctuary where the gods of the community were. It was the fortress which defended them and which their presence sanctified. It was the centre of the association, the residence of the king and the priests, the place where justice was administered. But the people did not live there. For several generations yet, men continued to live outside the city in isolated families that divided the soil among them. Each of these families occupied its canton, where it had its domestic sanctuary, and where it formed, under the authority of its pater, an indivisible group. Then, on certain days, if the interests of the city or the obligations of the common worship called, the chiefs of these families repaired to the city and assembled around the king, either to deliberate or to assist at a sacrifice. If it was a question of war, each of these chiefs arrived, followed by his family and servants, they were grouped by fatries or curies and formed the army of the city under the command of the king. Unquote. When the state grew to embrace a larger area, the term polis also embraced this wider area. Hence the term had primarily a political sense. The polis is the political centre as opposed to the town in a geographical sense. Towns that were subordinate to the polis were not cities in this political sense. 
The concise Oxford Dictionary of Current English, 8th edition, defines politics as, and I quote, the art and science of government, unquote. It is not the art of the possible or pragmatism, as is often claimed. Politics deals with how society should be governed. What, then, is the relationship between politics and Christianity? Does Christianity have anything to do with politics? The correct answer to this question is that Christianity has a great deal to do with politics. Indeed, that the Christian religion is, by its very nature, a political faith. It is not merely that Christianity has a political dimension. Rather, in its purest form, that is to say when it appears unmixed with the compromising effects of syncretism with false religions and idolatrous spiritualities that are alien to its own principles, the Christian faith is essentially political in nature. Christianity is the true politics, and this is because the church, the Christian community, is the true society, just as the kingdom of God is the true social order, in the sense that all societies that turn away from the covenanted social order established by God's word are idolatrous, the abandonment of God's true purpose for mankind and therefore the corruption and defacing of what humanity and human society were meant to be in the divinely ordained order of creation. Rebellion against God and rejection of the covenanted social order revealed in his law is a move from life to death, from the true meaning of man's life to a false meaning for life, from the true humanity to human corruption and depravity, from true society to social dysfunctionality and disintegration, with all the consequences that such apostasy entails. If the history of the human race has taught us anything, it is surely this, since as scripture declares, quote, He that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul, all they that hate me love death. Proverbs 8 verse 36. In relation to the Christian religion, the term politics can be used in two senses, in a general sense and in a more specific sense. Christianity is inevitably political in both these senses. We shall look first at politics as a general category for understanding the Christian faith. Most of the Greek city-states of classical antiquity aspired to and at various times established some form of democratic rule that is to say, government of the state by the people, the free citizens or commons. The Greek word for people in this sense was demos, from which we derive the English word democracy. In classical Greek, the term demos, and I quote, denotes the people as organised into a body politic, unquote, as opposed to the laos, which refers to the unorganised people at large. Demos is a political term. The assembly of the demos for political purposes was called the ecclesia. For example, in Athens, the ecclesia was the assembly of the demos at which all the officers of state not chosen by lot were elected. The ecclesia, therefore, was from the 5th century BC onwards in Athens and most Greek city-states, the assembly of the demos, the people constituted as a political body. It is the Greek word ecclesia that the New Testament uses to refer to the assembly 
or congregation of believers, and therefore that the Holy Spirit has chosen to denote the nature of the body of Christ, and which has usually, but quite erroneously, been translated in most English versions of the Bible as church. It is imperative, especially in the modern world, which is so much under the mesmerising sway of post-enlightenment secular humanist idolatry of political power, that Christians recognise the significance of this fact. In using the term ecclesia to denote the assembly of the body of Christ, the society of the faithful, the Holy Spirit has given us an intensely political term. The body of Christ is a political body. She is the ecclesia, the congregation of the freemen of the New Jerusalem. For those with ears to hear, this fact thunders out from the pages of Scripture, only to be smothered and buried by centuries of mistranslation and the irrelevant spiritualizing of God's Word, which has rendered the modern church's mission in this vital sphere of life virtually useless. The result has been that instead of discipling the nations to Christ, as he commanded in the Great Commission, the modern church has been reduced to cleaning up secular humanism, accepting and compromising with its principles and practices, conforming to its institutional norms and way of life, content only with cleaning its collars and cuffs and presenting it as something it is not. But the Lord Jesus Christ did not come into this world to provide secular humanism with a laundry service. He came to claim the kingdoms of this world for himself as his rightful inheritance, and he commissioned his church to disciple the nations. The church will not have fulfilled her mission, nor will she enter her rest, and therefore will not see the end of her tribulation, until it can be said that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Revelation chapter 11 verse 15. The word ecclesia is not a cultic term, that is to say, a term denoting the meeting of a group of people united by their devotion to a particular deity and the maintenance and promotion of his cultus. Ecclesia is a thoroughly political term denoting the assembly or congregation of those who are members of a body politic. To be a member of the Christian ecclesia, therefore, means to be called out of the world of unbelief and sin and into a new political community with its own social order, the kingdom of God. There were many words available to denote cultic groups in classical Greek culture and literature, which the authors of the New Testament could have used to identify the church primarily as a cultic group devoted to maintaining the cult of Jesus and indeed, pagan writers did use such words to describe the church. Even Eusebius refers to Christians as theosotai, that's to say members of a theosos, a pagan religious term. But the Bible, written by men under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, does not use such words of the church. It does not identify the church as a mystery cult. According to A.D. Nock, an inquisitive believer in the ancient Roman world who gained access to a Christian assembly expecting to find some kind of mystery cult would have been disappointed. He would have heard, says Nock, and I quote, scriptural readings, a little wearisome perhaps by reason of their length, 
an exhortation like those of the synagogue, and his impression here also may well have been that this was of the nature of a philosophical school. If he was able to stay for the central ceremony, he would have difficulty in recognising it as cultus in any ordinary sense. The officiates did not use a fixed form of words, followed as in Roman prayer through fear that the supernatural powers invoked would not give what was desired if one syllable or gesture was varied. Unquote. Furthermore, in the context of the Greco-Roman world in which the Christian gospel was first proclaimed outside Judea, the worship of Christ as an object of personal devotion was not prohibited. At the time of the Caesars, the ancient Roman laws prohibiting the worship of foreign gods were no longer strictly enforced, having been subverted by the many foreign mystery cults that were popular in Rome. The Romans, who were religiously inclined, said Augustus Neander, and I quote, attributed their sovereignty of the world to this policy of conciliating the gods of every nation. Even without the limits of their own country, individuals of these nations were allowed the free exercise of their opinions, and hence Rome, into which there was a constant influx of strangers from all quarters of the world, became the seat of every description of religion. Unquote. Charles Norris Cochrane refers to the easy toleration that was normally accorded to unlicensed cults by the Roman authorities. Consequently, devotion to Christ and the maintenance of his cultus was not in itself considered a problem in ancient Rome at the beginning of the Christian era. All the gods found their place in Roman culture. Jesus was not an exception. At one point, the Emperor Tiberius had even proposed to the Senate that Jesus be consecrated as a Roman god. Hadrian is said to have built temples in Christ's honour, and Alexander Severus had in his private chapel statues of Christ and Abraham. Even the apostate Emperor Julian was prepared to accept the Jehovah of Judaism into the pantheon of his syncretistic religion. He also recalled the banished Christian clergy and insisted on equal toleration for Jews and all Christian sects. The worship of Jesus as a deity of a devotional mystery cult posed no threat to Rome. But this is not how the Bible proclaims Christ, nor was it how the early church proclaimed Christ. Rome rejected Christianity not because it rejected the worship of Christ as a god, but rather because Christianity represented a rival political order to the Roman Empire. The Romans perceived the Christian faith as a political threat to Rome, and the proclamation of Christ as Lord as a political offence, not a religious offence in the narrow sense. Had Christianity been merely one more cult among the many mystery cults that existed in Rome, there would have been no problem. But Christianity is not a mystery cult. The Christian Church, that is to say the body of Christ, is an ecclesia, a political body that acknowledges one king as lord over all, whose law is to be obeyed by all, and who tolerates no rivals. To worship Christ merely as the object of some devotional cultus is a denial of his lordship. The point for Rome was simply this, either Caesar is lord or Christ is lord. As long as Caesar was acknowledged as lord, Christians were permitted to worship Jesus as the object of their personal devotion. 
In other words, they were permitted to practice their faith as a Christian mystery cult, that's to say, a personal worship hobby. But their politics had to be the politics of Rome, and it was submission to this political principle that was symbolised by emperor worship. As Stuart Perown pointed out, and I quote, Whereas for the Christian, politics must always be the servant of religion, for the pagan, it is the other way around. Religion must serve the ends of policy, and that is the fundamental cause of the opposition of Christian and pagan polities. Unquote. It was no different for Rome. The function of Roman religion in the age of the emperors was political, that is to say, to act as social cement and to support the state. Referring to the official cults authorised by the Roman College of Pontiffs, C. N. Cochrane writes, and I quote, In origin and purpose, in the various techniques of propitiation and augury which they employ, in their ritual of purification and appeasement, their one and only object is to maintain the peace of the gods, Pax Deorum, and for this literally anything will serve so long as it is felt to be politically expedient, even though, as with certain importations from the Orient, it may be found necessary to emasculate or quarantine the cult, lest it should pollute the native atmosphere. But to say this is to suggest that the spirit of official religion was utterly pragmatic. Accordingly, it becomes purely irrelevant to inquire into its substantial truth or falsehood. Formally speaking, a question of this kind simply does not arise. It is only by appreciating these facts that we can possibly understand how intelligent and high-minded citizens like Cicero or the Emperor Augustus himself could have given any countenance to practices which, as they perfectly well knew, were sheer and unmitigated humbug, justifying themselves on the grounds that these were material to the preservation of social order. Unquote. Accordingly, Seneca attacked superstition, says Cochrane, but, and I quote, recommended the worship of the political gods both as a matter of form and as expedient for binding the masses to civil society. Unquote. Augustus Neander observed that, and again I quote, Ideas of the universal rights of man, of universal religious freedom and liberty of conscience, were altogether foreign to the views of the ancient world. Nor could it well be otherwise. For with them the idea of the state was the highest idea of ethics, the end and realisation of the supreme good. Consequently, the development of whatever else is good, or an object of human desire, was made dependent on this. And so even the religious element also was subordinated to the political. They knew of none but state religions and national gods. It was Christianity that first of all and alone substituted more enlarged views for this narrow principle of antiquity. Instead of national deities and the paramount obligation of political ties, it taught men to worship the one God of all human, and to see in all men alike the common image of that one God, while, in the place of the state as a centre of human interest, it substituted a universal kingdom of God, embracing and superior to all human polities. 
looked at from this point of view, which was the one actually taken by the ancient world, a defection from the religion of the state could not appear otherwise than as a crime against the state. Unquote. Neander goes on to point out that, and again I quote, all this especially applies to the ancient Roman world with its exclusive political principle which engrossed every other interest. Unquote. The great adversary of Christ, indeed the great Antichrist, in the early centuries of the Church's history was the state as conceived by classical antiquity, not the worship of the pagan gods. In his study of Christianity and classical culture, C.N. Cochrane refers to, and I quote, the Aristotelian doctrine that man is an animal whose potentialities can be realised only in the polis, unquote, and goes on to argue that Aristotle, and again I quote, fully agrees with Plato in his supposing that the individual substance possesses significance only, so to speak, as the carrier of the type. Furthermore, that while everything else in him belongs to the ephemeral world of generation and decay, the typical alone is permanent, essential and intelligible. Finally, that for the realisation of this permanent, essential and intelligible part of his being, what he requires is to live in the polis. Unquote. Moreover, for Aristotle, and again I quote, the polis constitutes a response to the specifically human demand for a specifically human order. In this sense, it may properly be described as natural, but its naturalness is in no sense that of a spontaneous growth. On the contrary, it is that of an institution designed within the limits conditioned by the potentialities of the material to secure mankind from accident or spontaneity thereby making possible the attainment of his proper end. From this standpoint, the order embodied in the polis is profoundly unhistorical. What it promises, indeed, is immunity from flux, which is all that idealism discerns in mere movement. And this is the reason why, according to Aristotle, the man who first invented the state was the greatest of benefactors. Unquote. In other words... The state is man's saviour. It is that in which man lives and moves and has his being. If we call to mind, said Fustel du Collanges, and I quote, that among the Greeks the state was an absolute power and that no individual right was of any value against it, we can understand what an immense interest every man had, even the most humble, in possessing political rights. That is to say, in making a part of the government. The collective sovereignty being so important that a man could be nothing unless he was part of this sovereign. His security and dignity depended upon this. Unquote. The state, therefore, defines man, who is effectively conceived as being made in the image of the state. Similarly, Joseph Leckler writes that in Aristotle's politics, the state is, and I quote, presented as a natural product of human evolution deriving from the life of the family and then from that of the village, as a perfect society based on natural law, without any aid from revelation, unquote. By contrast, 
In the biblical perspective, the state is not the natural product of the evolution of human society, but rather an institution established by divine mandate to mitigate specific evil effects of the abnormal condition prevailing as a result of man's fall into sin. For the Christian, God is the one in whom man lives and moves and has his being, the one in whose image mankind is made, and therefore the one who defines mankind. In the ancient world, this spirit of Antichrist achieved its most potent manifestation in the cult of the Roman emperors. Speaking of the early church, Christopher Dawson said that, and I quote, The Christian regarded the official worship of the emperor as a supreme act of blasphemy, the deification of material power and the setting up of the creature in place of the creator. So long as the empire confined itself to its secular function as a guardian of peace and order, the church was ready to recognise it as a representative of God. But as soon as it claimed an exclusive allegiance and attempted to dominate the souls as well as the bodies of its subjects, the church condemned it as a representative of Antichrist. Thus the denunciations of the apocalypse are as integral a part of the Christian attitude to the empire as St Paul's doctrine of loyal submission. To St John, the official cultus of the emperor, as organised in the province of Asia, is the worship of the beast, and Rome herself, the Dea Roma of the state religion, is the great harlot enthroned upon the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Unquote. Sacrificing to the emperor, that is to say, the burning of incense on an altar before an image of the emperor, was an act of political compliance. By the time of Claudius, it had become an outward sign of loyalty that involved little sentiment. Christians were not required to believe in the divinity of the emperor. They were required merely to observe the right outwardly, thereby acknowledging the political supremacy of Caesar. Neither the people nor the emperors themselves, with the exception of those that were mad, actually believed that the emperors were gods. Augustus laughed at the idea, and Vespasian mocked the prospect of his apotheosis on his deathbed. Accordingly, many of the magistrates, said Neander, and I quote, who felt no personal antipathy to Christianity, urged the Christians who were brought before them to comply, at least outwardly, with what the laws required, viz. to observe the religious ceremonies prescribed by the state and explained to them that the state concerned itself only with the outward act, and that consequently, so long as these were performed, it could leave them free to believe and worship in their heart whatever they chose. Unquote. Rome did not have a problem with people worshipping Jesus as an object of personal devotion. The mystery cults were well established in Rome at the time of the persecutions, and the practice of the Christian faith as merely one more mystery cult among many posed no threat to Rome. The problem was with the idea that someone or something other than Rome itself, as symbolised and embodied in the Roman Emperor, should have a prior political claim on anyone's allegiance. The real battle that the early church faced was not between Christ and any of the pagan gods and religions, but rather between Christ and Caesar both of whom claimed divine authority and sovereignty over the same world. This was a political battle. As Ethelbert Stauffer explains, and I quote, Such, then, was the inner state of the people of the Roman world. What was the truth? 
Reason of state must decide what is valid and invalid, what was to be said and not said. What was faith? Everyone had ceased to believe in the gods or the mysteries. All that was left was belief in the emperor. Nor was even that taken seriously in the end. No one believed anything. The veneer of piety masked an absence of all belief. Was the Christian far wrong when he said that the gospel in the Roman world was the witness to the truth in a world full of semblance and lies and self-deceit? To speak of deceit was no cheap Christian reproach, but deceit was in fact the fatal sickness of the worship of the emperor, known by all, acknowledged by none. In other words, observing the cult of the emperor was a form of what we should perhaps today call political correctness. The political culture of ancient Rome, idolatry of political power justified by deceit, in other words, spin, offers a striking comparison with the political idolatry that characterises modern Western culture, though the latter exists in a more consistently secularised form. The materialism of ancient Rome also offers comparison with modern Western culture. It is indeed true, wrote C.N. Cochrane, and I quote, that Christianity never preached or advocated the forcible overthrow of the Roman order. Nonetheless, it regarded that order as doomed to extinction by reason of its inherent deficiencies, and it confidently anticipated the period of its dissolution as a prelude to the establishment of the earthly sovereignty of Christ. Unquote. Christianity was a political problem for Rome. The idea that the conflict between Rome and Christianity was a religious conflict in the narrow sense of the term that is to say a conflict caused by the refusal of Christians to worship the pagan gods, is false. Francis Legg stated the real nature of the conflict between Rome and Christianity, and I quote, The picture of Diana or Christ, representing a young woman called upon by a sympathetic Roman magistrate to choose between sacrificing to the statue of the many-breasted Artemis of Ephesus and the condemnation to death as a Christian, attained a great popularity in its day and shows with fair clearness the view of the relations between paganism and early Christianity supposed at the end of the last, that's to say the 19th century, to have been current at the first. Yet hardly anything could give a falser idea of the religious history of the period. The officials of the Roman Empire in time of persecution sought to force the Christians to sacrifice not to any of the heathen gods, but to the genius of the emperor and the fortune of the city of Rome. And at all times the Christians' refusal was looked upon not as a religious, but as a political offence. For the rest, the worship of the Olympian gods had, when Christianity came to the surface, almost entirely died out, and both Greek and Latin writers witnessed to the contempt with which it was regarded by both races at the beginning of our era. Unquote. Nevertheless, the emperors continued to use the old religion for political purposes. In the Principate, said Ethelbert Stauffer, and I quote, it is true the old belief in the gods was encouraged by Augustus and his successors on political grounds. But the philosophers shrugged their shoulders at the superstition of the people who worshipped the grave of Zeus in Crete or recounted tales of heroes playing dice with the gods in the underworld 
and bringing back a golden towel as a souvenir. And when the Christians were offended by such stories of the gods, the philosopher Celsus smilingly explained that nobody really believed these things anymore. And for that very reason, people should not be asked to believe the stories about Christ. It was the end of the old religion of the gods, which ceased to be taken seriously. Unquote. Christopher Dawson makes the same point. Quote, the religious element in ancient culture, which had been the inspiration of civic patriotism in the 5th and 6th centuries BC, had almost disappeared from the cosmopolitan civilization of the imperial age. The temples and the gods remained, but they had lost their spiritual significance and had become little more than an occasion for civic ceremonial. Unquote. Indeed, Dawson described the Roman Empire as the greatest experiment in secular civilization that the world had ever seen, and goes on to point out that, and I quote, It is a mistake to suppose that the age of the empire was a religious one because it was marked by so many new religious movements. The mystery religions and the tendency towards mysticism and asceticism are a proof of the religious bankruptcy of society which drove the religious-minded to seek spiritual life outside the life of the city and of society in an esoteric ideal of individual salvation. Even Stoicism, the one sect of the time which inculcated a disinterested ideal of social duty, was fundamentally an unsocial and individualistic creed. The reigning culture had become almost completely secularised, and the religious and the social instincts were becoming opposed to each other. Unquote. Moreover, as Ethelbert Stauffer makes clear, and I quote, the Roman authorities were fundamentally tolerant in religious matters. Every people of the empire could have its own beliefs, and every individual could strive for salvation in his own way. No religious community was suppressed so long as it fell in with public order. Only the worship of the emperor was obligatory on all, for it was grounded in imperial law, and the Roman authorities permitted no laxity in matters of law. The worship of the emperor was therefore not fundamentally a matter of belief, but one of public order and discipline, a duty for civilians and soldiers alike, an obligation of honour which every loyal subject strove eagerly to fulfil." Denis de Rougemont summed up the real nature of Roman society, and I quote, Man no longer drew his unique dignity from some indestructible essence, but from the personage which he had become in the city, now that the city was supported by the edifice of the law and the institutions duly set in a hierarchy. Social Puritanism, a morality of service of the state, is what made the grandeur of the empire and its subjects' poverty of spirit. If dissociation permanently hung over the Greek city-state, it was the collectivist sclerosis that brought about the fall of Rome. Christianity had to contend with no more than a civic religion which frustrated the hunger of the soul." Unquote. The refusal of Christians to burn the incense was a political statement that Rome could not ignore without conceding everything in principle to the God of the Christians. Burning the incense was not something a Christian could do 
without conceding everything in principle to the Roman political idolatry that it symbolised. Refusal to burn the incense said everything. Caesar is not Lord, Jesus Christ is Lord. No sphere of life is beyond his jurisdiction and no area of life is religiously neutral. Consequently, as Dawson points out, and I quote, it was inevitable that Christianity should come into conflict with the pagan government and society. To the ordinary man, the Christian was an antisocial atheist, an enemy of the human race, who cut himself off from everything that made life worth living. To the authorities, he was a centre of passive disaffection, a disloyal subject who would not take his share of the public service or pay homage to the emperor. Unquote. Nor was the problem merely one of perception on Rome's part, that is to say, paranoia. According to Stauffer, and I quote, Christianity offered in fact the only open resistance in the whole empire to the cult of the emperor. This resistance movement became more and more dangerous through its alliance in the capital itself with the senators of the old school and through its penetration of the ruling classes, of the court itself and even the imperial family, unquote. As we have seen, the word ecclesia is an intensely political term, not a cultic term. For Christians to claim that they are members of the ecclesia of another kingdom, with a divine king whose authority extends to all nations and to whom all men must and one day will bow the knee, was a great political offence to Rome. Worse, it was treason against Rome because Christ was proclaimed as a superior lord to Caesar, a king above the Roman emperor to whom Christians prayed, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. This is made clear by the complaints lodged against Paul and Silas with the rulers of Thessalonica by the non-believing Jews. Quote, These all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. Unquote. Acts 17 verse 7. Though malicious in intent, this was not a false claim. The Christians did proclaim another, and indeed a superior, king. This is evident also in a church liturgy from the 3rd century, which states, and I quote, Almighty God, to thee be the glory, the honour, the majesty, the adoration and worship, to thee and thy Son Jesus Christ, our Lord and God and King, unquote. To this the congregation responded, and I quote, It is worthy and meet, Christ is victor, Christ is king, Christ is Caesar. His is the glory forever. Amen. Unquote. Christians claimed that Jesus Christ is Lord, not the Roman emperor. That lordship comprehends everything, politics included. In the end, the only way to save Rome politically was for Caesar to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. The problem with the Christians from the perspective of Rome was not that they worshipped the wrong deity, but that they were traitors to Rome. That is to say, they espoused a rival political order to that of Rome. In this, the Romans were entirely correct, and nothing demonstrates this fact better than the use of the term ecclesia as the proper designation for the members of Christ's congregation. The church, as the covenant community of the Lord's people, is a political organism.
End of Lecture 3「ノーニュトラリティ」の番組は Reconstructionist From sea to sea, and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce. Including the audiobooks and audio articles will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom. Here.